Welcome. Welcome back to this um, bi-monthly episode. Wait, maybe we're staying on track here. Well, well, I'm staying on track. Nobody else is off track. But, um, yeah, trying to keep the, the two every second week going. And this sort of little, little snare drum practice pad, I mean, intro. Kind of ties into what I was talking about last time. This, this general concept of being open-minded. Um, this, you know, these topics... Um, they're more of a, uh, as all of it is, it, it's an archive of myself. So these these topics are a reminder to me more than a uh, advice to anybody that cares to listen. But anybody that, you know, does listen and uh, feels in any way kind of, um, you know, moved or whatever by what they hear or think about because of this it's um that's a good thing uh, i think well maybe it's a terrible thing maybe i'm maybe i'm make somebody give up the drums no i'm only joking um it's my silly sense of humor but yeah so it was this is kind of a more uh, the, 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 t the title of this episode for anyone that's you know obviously clicked on the link and Thought, what's this rambling nonsense about this time? Uh, is knowledge, and it was it occurred to me after the previous episode that um, you know the, the accumulation of the K word. Um, sorry, I'm just adjusting this cable. The accumulation of the K word of knowledge. Is um, obviously a byproduct of um, of being open-minded, which is an obvious statement to make. But it, it kind of got me into thinking a little bit these last couple of weeks about um, knowledge. And I watched this really interesting YouTube um, lecture from um, MIT. I was watching it last night and sort of finished watching it this morning actually. Um, and it's one of you know one of those things where you're you kind of start looking around and <clears throat> you'll sort of um, find various different things that are um, within the sort of subject area of of, um, of what you've been thinking about. And this was this uh, was a really interesting thing about um, public speaking, about um, you know the ability to get up in front of people and, and speak. And one of the one of the things I enjoy about doing this podcast is. That this is exactly the opposite situation of that. I really do not enjoy getting up and speaking in front of anybody. Um, my the the introverted side of my personality really takes over and um, makes things quite tricky for me. If I have to speak in front of people, um, it, it, my brain becomes quite literal, and I don't have. I don't have a literal mind when things are kind of things are going well and things are flowing, but sadly, um, my brain can just sort of default to that when I um, I'm kind of thrust in front of an audience, you know, in front of people. Um, I find it hard. I find it. I find it difficult, and and I've kind of been thinking along the lines for a while of of wanting to sort of deal with it. Uh, it comes from a thing that 
somebody that I worked with a lot years and years ago, um, an old friend of mine called uh, Roger Wickham. Um, some of you may know him as Chip Wickham. Uh, that's his kind of artist name, you know. Um, and, um, and and Roger, um, we and Roger played together a lot in the late 90s. Um, we we had I was in various bands that he ran and uh, and that he had with his wife as well and uh, and we also played together in a band called Jimster um, drum and bass band and then um, and then our kind of careers went in different directions and Ro Roger worked with lots of you know, quite high profile pop artists and stuff and then he, under his own name now Chip Wickham he's, he has a successful kind of, um, you know, records and, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, he's a, an artist in his own right now, uh, but has still guested and played with um, some quite high-profile high profile artists. Um, but the thing that I always um, thought that Roger was really good at, apart from being, you know, obviously by default, the musician that he was, I mean, that's kind of a given, but... Um, I, he was great on the mic, you know, on gigs, and uh, and this really came to something quite recently, actually. But but the history of that was I was talking to him. We used to we used to I, used to, I never used to drive, so that, that it was a real drag for these guys in this band. There was there was Roger and there was Chris Brown, a really nice guy, bass player. Uh, brother of Steve Brown, the drummer of Steve Brown, which probably a lot of you know if you're drummers listening to this, you'll know Steve Brown. He's a very, very well-known British jazz drummer, great player. And, and his Chris, uh, sorry, his brother Chris, who's a very, very good bass player. Uh, well, he still is, but I don't, I've not played with Chris for quite a long time, but we used to do a lot of gigs together and we used to travel a lot together because I didn't drive. And also Jamie O'Dell, who was, who was um, in, the, in the band, who used to drive me as well. Anyway, it was... You know, it was, a, it was a sort of bone of contention for quite a while that I was a non-driver. I grew up in a non-car household, by the way. This is one of the reasons why I didn't drive, because I didn't. We didn't grow up with a car. Me and my, you know, my brother and my my late mum and dad didn't. Um, we didn't have a car in the house. We couldn't afford a car, so um, we everything was public transport. So the concept of driving for me. Uh, the actual thing of the, the ownership of vehicle was always that felt like it was beyond me. And um, anyone that knows me now will find that whole concept farcical, um, which would be fair enough. But if you don't know someone from you know their early life, then you wouldn't know that about them because it's something I've clearly um, rectified in my later life, having owned probably over forty cars since two thousand and. So since 1998, I learned to drive. Uh, New Year 99, the year before the millennium, I, I passed my driving test January 5th, 99. Um, so, or was it 98? Yeah, not sure actually. It's a good question. Anyway, you know, uh, between then and now, I've owned a lot of cars. Because I was always into I was into cars before I drove. I've always been into the car, and I was always into Formula One. And I was always, I used to like watching motorbikes. And I used to like watching um, touring cars, and just and I just like engineering things and vehicles and all that kind of stuff. So 
people often mistake this thing with me, you know, when they find out that, you know, I came, that I came to cars quite late, they're always a bit shocked. People have known me in the last maybe 15 years. But um, the reality of it is that we, you know, grew up in a household where I remember a very vague memory of the, a car that we owned as a family when I was... I mean, it's funny because it's probably one of my earliest memories, maybe the age of three. And my dad drove us to um, to North Wales illegally because he hadn't passed his test. And um, anyway, the car, I, I have two memories of this car. One, one minute it was there and the next minute it was gone. I can see it very vividly now. And then the next memory is of we used to walk up this road there's a big scrapyard by this road I remember asking my dad is, is that where the car's gone you know um and i think he sort of said kind of yes out of you know not being bothered to get into the whole describe you know going through the whole thing of what happened to the car but the car had been scrapped because it was crap you know I don't remember what the car was, by the way. No, not that anyone's asking me, but just in case, you know, someone's going to send me an email. What was the car, Dave? No idea. Um, but it was a pile of crap. And then we never had a car again because we never had any money. So, and it was, you know, it was just not a priority in our household. So that's the kind of weird thing about uh, about that kind of driving thing. So when I was in that band... I wasn't driving, and uh, and so the thing that the weird thing that kind of happened for me was when I learnt to drive. Um, two or three, two or three things kind of coincided with each other, but um, one was was the Jimster band kind of disbanded, um, you know, a year or so after that because Jamie moved to London. I I was ill as well. But also I'd learned to drive. And the thing that happened once I learned to drive, Kel Surprise, is I got lots of gigs with lots of different people. So I suddenly went from um, playing in uh, in a few projects and being very involved in a few projects that had, that had long-term kind of legs about them. And that's something that I really miss now. To, to being someone who was was genuinely just a schlepping all over the place, driving every day to a different place to play with different people for, for very small amounts of money. Um, and again, you know, that kind of um, ideology and, and mentality is born out of a thing of insecurity, of worrying, one, that there isn't going to be work the next day, and secondly, if you say no to somebody, they're not going to ring you again. And I fell, really fell foul of that, both those things in my younger career, which uh, I never got out of, to be frank. You know, um, there was always something that plagued me. Two things profoundly changed that for me. One was the job that I still have now, um, a teaching gig, which is a good teaching gig, really very good teaching gig, teaching really good people and teaching in a way which suits me. It suits the way I play and the way I... my concept of um, music and how I want to live in music and share my musical life. And the second was working with um, 
artists away from jazz, uh, most notably Tom McRae, but, but a few other people that I won't mention on here because I don't, I don't work with them anymore. But um, but it's just some, you know, the, the, the just that thing of getting back into working with people in a kind of more long-term or focused project-based thing. Um you know that that those two things made a profound difference to me about about twelve years ago, um, and and well, 12, between twelve and fifteen years ago, um, and yeah. So getting back to the Roger thing, sorry, because again tangents, but they're all tangents because they're all connected to nothing and everything at the same time. Um, I used to do. I used to spend a lot of time in the car with Roger. And Chris and Jamie, mainly with Chris, but but uh, quite a lot, of, quite a lot of some of the earlier times in the band with Roger, and we used to um, have some great conversations. You know, we used to just talk about all sorts of stuff. It was very therapeutic, um, and um, and me and Chris as well. Me and Chris had had a lot of humour. There was a lot, of, lot. It was very funny. And um, and just just lots of stuff, you know. It was great. We were good, we were good friends. And and um, but anyway, the thing I talked to Roger about was I said, look, you know, you're so good at talking to um, the audience. You know, you've got this way about you. It's, you're so like engaging. Is there's a, there's, a, there's a thing that you know? I say, you know, from behind the drums when you start talking. It's like I'm in the audience as well, you know. It's like I'm listening to. I don't know what you're going to say, and we have this. Um, and there's there's a few people I've met in life that have that thing about them, where you genuinely, the way they talk to the audience is just it's something that you almost look forward to. And he said to me, "Ah, oh, I was awful. I used to be awful at it." He said, "But you've got to work at it. It's something you've got to really work at." And um, it really struck a chord with me at the time. Because I realised, one, I didn't have the opportunity to work at it because I didn't run a band. And um, at that time, I did run a band uh, after that for a, for a short while, no pun intended, with one of the tunes that I wrote. But uh, um, he was right. It is something that you need to work at. And and there's different situations, aren't there, of speaking in front of people. And, and when, I got, when I was running my own band, I, I kind of got better slightly better at talking to the audience, I kind of felt like I I kind of had a few things, not that I used to say, but I, I used to pick my times to speak to the audience and, and there, there would be, you know, quite specific points in the in the sets. It was, there's two sets of music and... Um, but I never felt like I was any good at it. And then at work, you know, where, where I work, there's an expectation... Um, to talk in front of people, and then and then there's kind of I had some media training a few years ago, which was just horrific. You know, the whole thing with it was just, you know, it was just. Um, I just realised how good people are when they're on the television and what have you. You know. Um, so anyway, one of the videos I watched this week, this video I was watching this morning, and and it had come from this kind of thinking about being open-minded and then this thing about knowledge, was this thing about speaking. And this guy had this formula. Um, and uh, the most important thing in this formula was was the K word. The K word is knowledge, you know, he said. Um, and, the, and, and the least important thing in this formula was talent. And... 
Now, I'm not comparing um, what he's saying to the thing of being a, a musician that is talented or has an innate talent for something. You know, I think genetically or, or soci socially, you know, environmentally, nature, nurture, all those arguments, certain things can align for people, young people, that, that mean that the innate, the kind of genetic innate talent, that thing that comes from within the way we're wired, hardwired from birth or, you know, through genetics, I don't know, I really understand a lot about it. It does feel to me that there is something in that because I have this weird thing, as I've talked about previously in this podcast with the other half of of my extended family is um, there's music and drums involved in that family, but not in the immediate family, but it's a funny coincidence of the kind of profound um, kind of um, clarity which I wanted to do this thing at a young age, you know. Once once I got beyond wanting to be a deep-sea diver and um, whatever else it was I wanted to be, can't remember... Um, wanted to have different colour hair, wanted to have a different name and wanted to be a deep-sea diver. I think they were, they were the main points of, uh, of the early childhood. But once I kind of got to an age where I was really sort of starting to think about what I'd like to, really like to do realistically, you know, drums was the, was the thing. And quite happily fell in and out of love with it at points as well when I was younger, when I was, when I was you know, a young, you know, 12, whatever, 13-year-old, when I started playing when I was 12. And, you know, there was, a, there was a period between the age of sort of 12 and 14 before I went to music school where I kind of stepped away from the drums for quite a period, you know. Um, it's funny, I, I can't think about why, what was going on then. It's like a blank period. But I know that there was definitely... A, a time when I didn't really play a lot um, and then kind of went back to it. And I think it's all pretty fluid when you're that age, you know, and that's cool. But, you know, um, I'd persuaded my parents enough to, to sort of for them to invest in, you know, in me, which, my, you know, my dad did eventually. Um, I was talking about, you know, a drum from quite, from about eight and stuff. And this, anyway, this whole story is in the early episodes of these podcasts. I don't want to bore you with all that again. But the thing of, of knowledge um, really got me sort of thinking this week about that, that idea of, of, of being open-minded. And then I was kind of challenged <coughs> to myself, as I normally am when I think about these things, about actually how open-minded am I? You know, um, and how much knowledge have I accrued? And then this thing of what does one do with knowledge? You know, just having a, a, a piece of knowledge. Um, well, it, it may be very useful. It may change everything. One sentence may profoundly change the way that you see something in life, you know. But generally with this thing that we do, there's normally some degree of work is needed, you know. <clears throat> some degree of, of having to spend some time um, understanding the knowledge, you know, actually immersing yourself within it. And this is the thing about practice. It's just that thing, again, of, of going, of, of thinking, going full circle all the time back to this central core thing of 
uh, the the question of when people say why do you practice still you know um there's people who are quite close to me that ask me that question you know because uh, i'm 51 and they they maybe think well you know you're as good as you're gonna be aren't you and i'm like no no i'm i'm um, better than i've ever been and they they Sometimes I think they see that as the same thing, and, and for me, it's very much not the same thing. Um, you know, one is being alive longer means that one has, you know, known more or knows more or has experienced more or has more, should I say, to compare the experience I'm having now with a previous experience, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which is kind of obvious. Um but if you combine that with the very powerful tool of being open-minded, acquiring information, knowledge from sources, even things that you don't like or really don't even you wouldn't think you're interested in, or just checking it out for the sake of having gone, yeah, I've confirmed that I'm not interested in that or I've confirmed that's something that is not for me or I'm confirmed that that's an idea that that is not where I am at the moment but I'm going to, I'm going to put it in the you know put it in the bank so to speak and uh, and maybe revisit it later you know or write it in my little practice diary or something or whatever but combine all that with then time served in the craft of practicing you know just the, the kind of you know to quote um, Stuart McCallum the heart and soul of what we do you know it's the heart of what we do you know the 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 that, that thing of crafting of um coming to the coming to the the, the place of um of practice uh, you know with a clear as clear a mind as one can have with with a with a plan um, you know, it's normally a, a singular affair. It's a it's a solitary affair, you know, in a way. Um, and and then we take the time to, you know, work our way through things that um, that we can't do. And there's two sides to that coin, isn't there? Because I, I know I say to students a lot: look, you can't practice everything, because that is now nowadays that is literally impossible when i was growing up there were you know there were a, a number of ex excellent books available to you of which they're all still available to all of us now but then you multiply that by whatever and then you multiply that by youtube and then you multiply that by instagram and then you multiply that by facebook and then you multiply that by i know i won't go on but you know what i'm saying then you're like okay so there is a huge amount of information out there but how much of that information is actually knowledge you know and to be more precise about that or focused on myself about that how much of that information is knowledge that is useful for me and so the thing of being open-minded is is it's a kind of it's almost like a time management exercise in a way you know, you're saying, okay, I want to be open-minded. I don't want to be kind of, um, you know, blinkered in my view and just kind of practice one or two things. Uh, I do, by the way, and I've said that many times. 
because I don't have a lot of time, <laughs> you know, because it's a time management thing. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's the idea of being open-minded is being open-hearted. Like, you know, I'm open to things. And I think inherently, you know, just the thing of being a drummer, I mean, any musician, but I, I can only speak as a drummer, uh, even though I'm, I, I'm a musician, but my, my instrument is drums, is the, 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 the feel that the, um, the nature of what I do means that I have to be open-hearted an open mind in order to, to, to come into the music and, and make music with people that uh, a lot of the time I don't know particularly well or don't know their music particularly well. Um, you know, because a lot of the things that, that I'm asked to do are kind of, uh, in a way, um, have a nature of improvisation about them. Uh, it's not improvised music, it's just that there's a nature of thinking on the feet within the music, thinking in the being in the moment, listening and responding in milliseconds to create something that is making a sound cohesively together that is translating to an audience of people that are either feeling comforted and recognising the sound of what they hear because they know the artist. They may not know me, but they know the artist, the music I'm playing within. Or they're hearing something like we are for the first time and they're going, wow, that's amazing, or that's awful, whatever, who cares? It's, it's all a reaction thing and people, you know, they love or like or don't like, but they, whatever they like, that's up to them. But this 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 idea of um, being open-minded and open-hearted is, is, has two sides to it. One is just as, as general as a person, being open-minded and being open, open-hearted and kind of being accepting and, and, and going, yeah, yeah, that's got validity, that's got what it is, but it's not, maybe not for me. You know, and then there's the thing of like researching and trying to understand more about certain things because we've deemed or someone we're studying with has deemed that that's useful for us, you know. So the thing I was playing at the beginning, this is an interesting um, practical thing as an example of this. Uh, for instance, because a lot of this is, you know, wittering kind of conceptual nonsense, a lot of it. But um, it's nice to give some practical examples occasionally. I was playing this riff at the beginning that was, if I'm giving you a pulse here, there's, I've got my bass drum practice pad on the floor. It's all a bit awkward here, sorry. It's all a bit flailing around. I'll try not to flail. But there's a pulse. And if we're looking at dividing that pulse into 16th notes or semiquavers, so there's four hits per per um, pulse that you're hearing, takadimi, 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 semiquavers. The thing I was playing at the top of this podcast that you heard a little excerpt of was this thing went that, 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 Okay. So that's just a simple um, rhythmical grouping in 4-4 four, four, over uh, two bars. So it's a 32-beat cycle in the division that I'm singing to you. Obviously, there's 64th notes. It could be, you know, um, it could be 128, doing my maths, you know, whatever. It could be some higher subdivision, 32nd notes or 64th notes or whatever, it doesn't matter. But this is in 16th notes. It's over two bars. So it's a 32-beat uh, kind of cycle thing, okay? Now, that may be, for some of you, maybe a different way of thinking about um, dividing up the bars, and that's totally cool. Um, 
it might just be what I'm saying to you is, is look, it's just two bars of 4-4, four, four, which is, you know, really, really early drum speak language because it's, you know, the, the first groove I could play was a groove in 4-4 four, four that was that had a kind of semi-quaver, 16th note kind of division to it, you know, baggy kind of groove, funky groove thing. So, but that groove is from an Avishai Cohen tune um can't remember the name of the tune it's off that and the album gently disturbed it's mark juliana on drums and when i first heard that track it opened a whole kind of can of worms for me where i realized that there was a huge gap in my rhythmical knowledge and also that the tide of what was becoming the norm within contemporary jazz was a, a deeper understanding of something that can be kind of taken from the North Indian classical tradition or, or the, the Southern Indian classical tradition, the conical system. Um, the North Indian has a different name, which I can't remember, sorry, I apologise. But um, both those systems have a, a verbalization of um, subdividing that uh, has deep kind of, you know, meaning. Um, all the sounds have a deep meaning, spiritual meaning, and all that. It's a, you know, it's a religious thing as well, a spiritual thing. It's uh, not something that I, I've ever studied and know anything about. I'm not saying that I do. But what I realised was a lot of young contemporary jazz drummers, uh, guys like Mark Giuliani, you know, for instance, who is um, he's younger than me, um, were using these systems... Um, to create interesting rhythms within regular time signatures, you know, as well as also being absolutely monstrous at playing in odd time signatures, you know, which was another massive gap in my playing at the time as well, and and still kind of is in 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 many respects. Mostly because I don't get to check to play that music, but um, it's something that I have studied more uh, since, well, just in the last kind of eight or nine years, really. But I remember being kind of, you know, quite profoundly um, aware of my lack of real understanding and being able to talk about this music rhythmically, you know. And then he's like, well, I'm, you know, my what I do is I play the drums and I'm supposed to know about rhythm. Um, and not just kind of, uh, you know obvious rhythm or rhythm that's kind of been you know been 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 done not just to sort of re-describe something or reteach something that's been done to actually be on a journey of trying to understand and be uh, at least on the backside of the wave maybe not at the front of it but on the on the backside of a wave of, of understanding a kind of new concept of of um, of how young drummers were kind of playing within music and at the time, I think I felt like there was a big kick against uh, the tradition of playing in time. Um, that, I know that probably sounds a bit contentious, um, but like the thing I was trying to, the thing I was aware that I needed to get together more and be better at was playing s simply in time. <laughs> um, I'd been through a number of years in a project which 
but I'd found quite challenging in a time, in, in, in respect of time. Uh, it was a jazz project that I'd been involved in and, and I'd found um, that that whole project was a, was a... There was a number of things that compounded it. It wasn't anything to do with that. It wasn't actually the project's fault, in inverted commas. The, the fault lay with myself, of course. It's, you know, I'm in control of my own destiny and I can do whatever I want. If I choose to do something, then the consequences of that are my choice. You know, So... There was a number of things that were going on during that period of about five or six years. One is I wasn't practising very much at all. Second, and really not finding solutions to problems, being but kind of being a kind of spectator at my own inadequacy, you know, of um, of looking into myself and being hypercritical, you know. Um, and in the last two, three years, I've had some of psychological help shall we say um have realized that that um that thing is um has been kind of omnipresent in my thought processes quite a lot of the time so it's kind of been quite a hindrance you know and it's been trying to kind of do something about that. And one of the things I've been trying to do about that is to just work a bit harder, actually, in a kind of practical sense of being really, really... being hard on myself with with purpose, not being hard on myself because it, it's just because I've got a psychological disease. <laughs> you, you know, if, anybody, if you understand what I'm saying. I mean, you, you know, you can be hard on yourself if you're really working hard at something and... And it's not coming together how you'd like, or you're not getting the results that you want. But you are working at it, and you know, and you know that the process you're going through is, you know, it's been maybe validated by an external source, and you're just doing a job of work, and it, and you're just, you know, you're not happy and satisfied with where it's at yet. Um, that's fine, I think. You know, it could be it can become unhealthy, but I think you know we, I think talking with our peers is very helpful with that. You know, uh, I urge you know students to talk amongst each other about that. That's very, very, very cathartic, uh, useful, helpful um, thing to talk with each other about those feelings. You know, um, but also, you know, this idea that um, one's just harsh on oneself because that's what we do. You know, because because if I'm hard on myself, then I mean I'll. Never be resting on my laurels, and I'll be always be humble to the greater thing, whatever that thing is, which I don't really know what it is. And I, I mean, I'm just being hard on myself because I need to be hard on myself because if I become arrogant and I'll become complacent, and people will think that I'm cocky, and you know, and um, that's not all very British, you know. And I don't know why I've gone into some weird British accent, but yeah, but you know, the, you can see the kind of. The, the the thing that's going on there is this idea that you know I've just by default got to be hard on myself, you know, um, and I was always that, and and I've only recently worked out why, um, and uh, it's not you know it's not a great thing, but one of the things like I was saying that I've done about that is is changed shifted. Um, practically what's going on. And that period, that five or six year period I'm referring to now, which is where this thing is actually in reference to, 
trying to stay on topic here. Stay on topic, Dave. Trying to remember the thread. Remember the thread. Bring the people back. Bring the people back to the conversation. So the uh, the reference to that five or six year period is is one of of one of 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 a, of a quite negative musical relationship in some respects in that period within that band, and also not practicing at all. So those two things. You know, like I was saying, I was a kind of a spectator to myself, my own criticism, you know, the criticism myself. But I was criticising something that shouldn't really be criticised because, you know, I'm just setting myself up to be, you know, to, for the fall because I'm... Most of the reason for it, not to make excuses, but was this thing I heard described earlier on as just being someone that said yes to everything and was earning next to nothing but was just travelling around all the time, playing with loads of different people and being a real yes person, you know, and being afraid, one, to say no, and secondly, uh, being afraid of um, of the phone not ringing, you know, that thing of as soon as you become not available, people stop ringing you. And, and as, you know, as my day job, in inverted commas, became more busy, especially after 2012 the phone rung less you know luckily I had another income to subsidize that and I also had a position where I could be you know more um, more reflective and reflexive as well um, with my um, with my learning and my practicing and, and what I was trying to do and what I was trying to communicate and what, what what my purpose in music was and that was great because it was coupled you know, just before that with um, some very positive experiences musically that were outside of the music I'd been playing for many years and got back into kind of being a, like a, you know, a rock player again a little bit. And um, I've realised recently that that's actually something that's quite still quite close to me, you know, um, playing in that way. And a lot of that's to do with the fact that have got a lot better at playing in time. And this brings us back to the thing, this thing I was originally talking to you about, about this semi-quaver grouping thing, you know. I had this real dichotomy of like, oh, there's all this new contemporary jazz thing going on, which has got complex rhythmical stuff, but I don't feel like I can play 4-4 yet. I don't feel like I can play, sw I don't feel like I'm swinging. I don't feel like I'm really working hard enough on coordination. I still feel really limited when I'm playing music that I've been playing for a long time, but I don't feel like I'm making any headway. Do I go down this rabbit hole of getting into all these like, unusual groupings with irregular time signatures and, and improve my time that way, or do I go the other way? And for a time, I chose option one. And uh, so one of the things with that, with this rhythmic thing, is those... That, the groove that Mark Giuliano plays in that thing, he plays this... Um, I think it's just on the bass drum. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a long time since I've listened to it, but I think that's what it is. It's just... Um, to that thing which is exactly the same thing but it's just 9995 but without the central pulse 
So I spent quite a long time really trying to nail a few of those sort of patterns whilst staying in time. And I really found that I was just struggling with it, massively struggling with it. Um, and then I started to go back and address this question of coordination. Because it was in, in 2000 and... I'm trying to remember when this was. I don't... It's just it's all a vague kind of period between 2014 and 2016-ish. But when I first met John Riley and, and I had this lesson with him, and one of the big things when I had this lesson was was my terrible bass drum technique. And, I, I, you know, I've discussed this, you know, I don't want to go over old ground again like I do every week, but it's, it's, it, it, this thing has been discussed in the previous podcast. But the point is that his observation that... I didn't have a technical problem. I had a problem of coordination. Now, I know, again, they're the, they're the same thing. They come under the same banner, don't they? You know, ultimately, the coordinational work that we do, if you were to divide up the, the kind of aspects of learning the drums, one of them is technique. And coordination falls I think I think we all agree it kind of falls under that banner, you know, of an overarching thing. There's many things involved in that. But it, it seems to to be agreed. I, I've struggled with that a bit. I, I kind of think of it as... I think it's maybe one of my problems, but I always thought of it as something separate. I, I thought, well, technique is... Am I playing molar? Am I playing finger technique? Am I playing from the wrist? Am I playing, you know, German? Blah, blah, blah. All these different techniques. French... Um, because of the classical background, you know, um, the non non drum kit, you know, non coordinated background in relation to multi limb, it was a kind of very kind of two way left right hands based thing, where I got my technical knowledge from, as in the technique, um, and so coordination, I was always viewing as something else, and he said to me, you know, you don't have a problem of technique in inverted commas, it's it's it's, a, it's just a question or a problem of coordinating yourself within what you're trying to do. You're, you've got some big holes in that. And he said, you know, as, as he was saying in the workshop, he said, you know, it's something that you can do, you just haven't worked it out yet, you know, which was one of the most positive statements I think ever ever heard anybody say to somebody else, you know. He said it to somebody in the workshop and he said it to me. And and, uh, and it's something that I've, I hope I've shared many times since because I feel that is one of the most useful things anyone ever said to me. It doesn't frame things in a way which deters you from trying to make progress. It frames things in a way where you go, I can find a solution to this problem. I can I can I can do something about this. I can be empowered to to resolve this. You know, so. Uh, that that was a that was kind of yeah I'd say six years ago, and um, and it was kind of stalled a little bit again in that time um, by a number of things, um, but 
three years ago, really uh, made efforts to um, to see things in, in, in a different way. And part of that was uh, was to do with my sort of personal life and my father getting ill and, and pa- then passing away, um, and sort of things had a slightly different perspective. You know, but, but the thing before that is just you know seeing someone who's extremely healthy and something come along that's that's there's absolutely no escape from and what and what the consequences of that are you know um and then secondly the thing of of beyond that of realize you know the the realization that um it's kind of i'm almost kind of i'm just really accountable to myself now you know my mother died when i was uh, 25 in 95 and my father passed away you know three years ago so well two years ago um two and a bit years ago but the that that kind of idea and my you know my brother's still around so i still speak to him and 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 i do have some accountability to my brother but mainly it's that thing of suddenly feeling that i have accountability to me you know really ultimately and the people around me but uh, in the sense of, you know, you, we we live with parents alive, and we 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 don't want to do things that make us ashamed <laughs> to our parents, do we? And then suddenly that's kind of not there anymore, and you you have to have to kind of. I've been thinking a lot about the what that means in relation to, you know, accountability to something, and and I kind of realised. A lot of these things kind of aligned together at the time of just like, oh, you know, well, I've been kind of I'm hard on myself for these reasons and, and actually I've been doing that for a long time. Mm, that's really negative. Oh, I, I feel like uh, something's gone now and something that's, you know, a big thing in my life that's kind of something that I check in with is gone now. Mm, okay, well, yeah, that's... Um, maybe there's a chance here to just to reset things slightly and... and uh, you know, and one of the first things that I did after sort of the you know the early grieving process was I started this because I wanted to archive um, stuff. It was just before I was fifty, you know, and uh, it felt like a positive thing to do. Um, and and then after that, well, and so before that, in the in the time before that, it was a very tricky year because I was very very busy. With work and my my dad being ill in in hospital a lot and, and kind of travelling between home and work and there and um, my girlfriend was away a lot as well working very hard um, in, in abroad a lot and was coming home for sort of short periods and going away for for quite long periods so there was there was a lot going on uh, in life outside practicing the drums and. I'd kind of got into this thing before it had all happened of getting back into practicing again because I was sort of working these things out in my head about this thing that John had said to me, you know, he'd said about your problems are this. If you work on this thing, then this will resolve or will start to make you feel like it's resolving those problems or that problem that you're perceiving and it's actually not, you know. And, um, and then... You know, in the last kind of two and a bit years since starting this podcast and uh, various other things, and COVID, obviously, which is now kind of, dare I say it, kind of overish, you know, 
we're certainly beyond the pandemic in the UK as we've, the you know, restrictions have been lifted now and everything's kind of back to inverted commas normal, living with it and having had it, you know, and having been vaccinated and all that. I'm, tr I'm treating sort of life now as kind of um, COVID-free in a way, you know, in my head. Uh, I don't think about it at all. So, but in that period you know, of, of really stepping back from the drum, from the, the gigging life and looking back at what the drums are to me and, and what practising the drums are and about what actually, you know, sorting some things out this, like sitting higher and sitting lower and all that stuff, things I've talked endlessly about on this. So it's been kind of, you know, a really interesting time, but I really feel like I've now, you know, made a lot of progress with that thing and then it's just how music and playing style, different styles of music, how they feel different to me now. And uh, there's much more joy, you know, much more joy in, in playing. Playing. Um, I was recording over this the end of uh, this week, just before this, um, and it was a... So we're working with a songwriter called Ben Walker, you know, a very, very talented musician, multi-instrumentalist. It's one of these people that really makes you, you know, go, bloody hell, how, how, it just has a real natural ability for music. Um, and um, he writes some beautiful songs, and we've been talking for a long, 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 long time about making an album together with with a couple of other people um, as well, who, who he's very friendly with, Pete Yuzu, I've known for a long time, great keyboard player, great friend of mine. Um, and and we were very lucky to have Ollie Collins with us as well on bass. Um, again, a, a long-time friend of mine, great bass player. And we did some recording last week, and it was great, and it was just nice, like, playing the drums um, in, in music that was... Um, you know, a bit rockier and a bit more open in that respect, a bit louder in a big room, nice sound recording, and just having this extra kind of renewed sense of control and freedom on the instrument. And how much that, how much you really feel that when you're playing music that's in inverted commas, could be perceived as simple. I mean, I don't think any of it's simple, personally, but I know that, you know, some people's value systems they see are very complicated and, and technical music as being harder. And uh, in some respects it is, but, you know, if you can't groove, then, you know, if it's not grooving, it's a tricky one, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? It's got to groove. It's got to have inflection and feel and articulation and shape and phrasing and emotion, you know, and all those things. And a good sense to the time. So it's like, it's funny that I kind of feel more equipped now to start thinking about playing in odd time signatures or working in odd groupings because I made the wrong decision back in whenever it was, 20, when I started listening to that album, which will have been, God, when did that come out? I mean, I think I was kind of listening to that music in sort of 2009 or something like that, thinking about the 9995 thing. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the reason why that particular tune appeals to me, by the way, is because it's in 4-4, essentially, isn't it? You know, so I wasn't being kind of... A lot, of the, a lot of the tunes on that album are 775 and are, are genuinely in 
odd time signatures that are um, and there are also multiple odd time signatures. But um, that tune, it was like oh, it's really interesting. But I kind of feel like only now, like I'm actually at a point where I could really start to enjoy and in and 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 learn and. Uh, spend some time with that kind of um, that kind of approach to rhythm, you know. Because um, the other side to that, um, and as any of you know or have listened to, uh, and I urge you to, uh, if you haven't, go back to the great interview I did with a lovely guy called Richard Cass, um, which I did quite some time ago. And if you haven't checked him out, like he's, I mean, he's playing is is everything I've describing here about this multi-limb ability to to play i mean it's just you know a polyrhythmic monster i think is steve white's description of him um and steve white's no slouch is he let's face it uh, he's a uh, pretty good <laughs> technically amazing um actually very very underrated actually um but um yeah but you know um, I'd urge you to go back and listen to that um, interview if you've not anyways um, I can't remember what the number is quite early on um, but yeah so I kind of feel like that's something somewhere I could return to you know now to, as, as a beginning point because the thing about you know Rich is, is he got amazing coordination you know, a real ability, and he and I know we we've talked a couple of times, and he thinks about coordination um, in a different way than I do because we come we come at it from two different kind of angles. You know, my 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 um, my fundamental background with coordination is from a jazz perspective, is from a thing of of being able to play time and comp, and be able to essentially comp with the three other elements than my right hand which is playing time you know just uh, that's like a very crude simplistic way of uh, describing where i've come from with coordination and the same thing follows with all grooves as well you've been able to play the uh the other three, the other two limbs predominantly um and you know some linear things with the left foot as well with i'm playing like hi-hat groove the hi-hats close and opens when it opens but the bass drum and the snare drum are playing you know vertical things that are happening in, in places where they need to be coordinated and there's all kinds of other things going on as well so that's been always been my kind of background and and riches is from a different from a different background you know um and it's very interesting i, I you know I'd, I'd like to really understand the way he thinks about coordination and, and that kind of multi-layering of different rhythms i'd like to understand that a bit more i mean again it's this thing of knowledge and so just as a bookmark to this, just because we're getting sort of to the end of the hour now, just, uh, I am trying to keep these to an hour, by the way, um, which I don't know why I make these commitments. It's, it's all nonsense, really. Um, but, yeah, just trying to make them not too long. Um, well, yeah, just to bookend it, it's just to say that, you know, there's a time for knowledge 
and there's a time to do something about the knowledge with which we acquire. You know, um, that's not supposed to be some profound, profound thing, by the way. It's just, it's just thinking of the, of the that thing I was talking about earlier on, of where you know you're open-minded, so you you're absorbing things, you're you're listening and watching things and checking things out, and you're parking or bookmarking some things, and other things are resonating with you because they're connecting to what you're doing now, and and then some things are are resonating and connecting with nothing that you're doing now and they're challenging what you think, oh, I need to be doing that thing now. So those those three things we're dealing with all the time, aren't we, you know? And uh, you may be involved in projects where you're just learning stuff for the projects. Um, I spent quite a long period of time being involved, involved in things that were essentially like that, not really practising the instrument but learning things for the music. And I wasn't working on the problems in, in my own playing, you know. Uh, I was just uh, dealing with the material and trying to play the material well, you know. And there's, there's lots to be said that's good for that, you know. Lots to be said that's good for that. The physical thing of just playing the instrument is a good thing. It's whether you want to do anything about the things that you're not happy with, you know. But don't give yourself a hard time if you're not practising those things, you know. Just uh, be nice to yourself, be kind to yourself. Um, if you've not been in the past, maybe consider it in the future. Something to um, something to think on about there, you know. And yeah, knowledge, acquire it, park it, bookmark it, or be inspired in in it, in it, let it drive forward what you're already working on, or or maybe someone's going to come along and whack you in the face and make you want to go down that rabbit hole you know um that third one that's what happened to me and i find that's quite challenging it's um don't know whether i should have parked it <laughs> well i think actually by default i did because i haven't really got anywhere really with that stuff I'd, i've got a much bigger understanding now and i've written quite I, wrote, I used to write all these things to practice to and i've got hundreds of them on my computer you know and a lot of them are in weird groupings or weird time signatures in inverted commas, you know. And um, a lot of that was just trying to get better at playing with a metronome or playing with a click. But it was also just to practice playing groupings, you know, and, and try and put groupings onto the drum kit and stuff. Um, but the, the, the problem I was coming up against all the time when I was practicing that stuff was coordinational issues of not being able to actually play the things I was hearing in my head in that, in that music and in, in those grooves, you know. So everything was pointing back to to what was you know where 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 I needed to be. So so that kind of yeah. Anyway, that's sort of um, I think that's kind of it for this week. I'm going to manage to keep this just within the hour. So uh, thanks for listening as ever. I really appreciate it. Um, and I'll be back with another episode next um, next couple of weeks. So yeah, bye for now.